Hello and welcome to the Aruka Network podcast with me, Jake Lloyd. 84% of the world's population has a religious faith. So faith plays a huge role in shaping the lives of communities worldwide. And it's also played a huge role in shaping healthcare worldwide. Many hospitals and clinics were started by faith groups and many continue to be run by faith groups, often now in partnership with governments. But do we pay enough attention to faith when we think about how to look after individual or community health? Faith ultimately is the most unexplored powerhouse that there has ever been for changing healthcare and health behaviour. That's the voice of Professor Andrew Tompkins, OBE, or to give him his full title, Emeritus Professor of International Child Health at University College London. Andrew's an expert on the relationship between faith and health. He also happens to be a trustee for Aruka Network. For a while now, I've been wanting to chat with Andrew on this podcast because faith is a big motivating factor for many in our network. And we're, of course, all interested in the health of our communities. But this interview with Andrew will be a slight departure from previous podcasts in that I normally like to hear from people working in a particular place or community and on a particular project. But this time, we're going to take a step back And Andrew's going to help us explore the overall global picture when it comes to faith and health. He's going to give us a brief history of this relationship. He'll tell us some good and bad examples of how faith impacts health. He'll cover the importance of community and power. And then he'll talk a little about the future relationship between faith and health. But I began by asking him to start at the beginning and to help us understand how faith has helped shape healthcare in its current form. From the very beginning, it's quite clear that the history of healthcare in the UK, for instance, is strongly influenced by faith. For instance, the wonderful, famous teaching hospitals in London, such as St Thomas's and St Bartholomew's Hospital and some of the other uh, hospitals throughout the UK, uh, were inspired by people who were faith, who had a Christian faith, and they wanted to put that into practice. And then what's happened in less developed countries, about sort of 100, 200 years ago, some of the earlier healthcare was provided by medical missionaries who went out from the UK to work in these poor countries. And over the years, that has changed quite considerably now that these are programs that are run by national organisations. But the way in which these work now is that some of the organizations which used to be called mission hospitals are now run as hospitals or community health programs often run by the church but often funded to a certain degree by the government and the the key thing here is to seek to discover the ways in which faith by the members of the staff and working with community leaders and key players within the community can have a positive impact on the health status and the outcome of healthcare. And in exploring this this relationship between faith and health, you co-edited an edition of the well-respected medical journal, The Lancet. And in it, you identified the 
potential improvement in global health that would come by building on the experience of uh, these faith-based organizations. And you also identified uh, controversies in the field of faith and healthcare. What do you mean by controversies? And can you give us some examples? Yes, well, The Lancet, as you say, is a, is a leading journal. And we had some very helpful interaction with the editor. And it was clear that when we were looking at some of the healthcare status um, in poor countries in particular, that there were differences of opinion between different faith groups as to what was appropriate healthcare, and sometimes differences of opinion between faith groups and people who had no faith, which we would call secular. And I suppose what we did, we had a series of meetings um, involving a wide range of interaction with people uh, from many, many countries in which we identified a number of issues such as child protection, family planning, uh, stigma and harm reduction, uh, violence against women, HIV and end of life issues. And what we did, we commissioned work which was looking at these from First of all, the epidemiological point of view, how, how big are these problems? And secondly, how much does faith contribute to some of the conflicts in terms of healthcare? And how does faith contribute to some of the coming together and to the improvement? And these papers are all freely available on the Lancet website. People can, uh, can Google Lancet controversies and faith and they will find these papers available. So you've identified some of the controversies there, but also uh, these opportunities. For example, you said that policymakers and faith leaders should work more closely together and that they, they're lacking knowledge and appreciation of each other. I just wonder what this looks like in practice and how it's been done so far. Um, do you have any examples of, of policymakers and faith leaders working more closely together? Yes. What basically happens is that most health policymakers in any country are primarily concerned with the delivery of the health care that they are obliged to give. All forms of health care, whether it's preventive or whether it's treative or treatment or whether it's rehabilitation. And they would rather look at it from the point of view of the health systems that they provide. Whereas the reality of the practice is that in many cases, it's uptake of healthcare that is a key thing. And the viewpoints and the values of people in community and the community leaders themselves has not necessarily been incorporated within the policy. So one of the key areas, for instance, was the whole area of stigma. Now, initially, uh, when the HIV epidemic came out, there was a large degree of rejection of people from faith groups by the leaders uh, of those faith groups who felt that HIV was a judgment from God as a result of sexual malpractice. And basically, over the years, those faith groups have changed their position and they have become much more involved and they're now working very closely with government. I'll give an example. For instance, HIV testing was very much 
feared and people were frightened of HIV testing. But um, I know of programs in Kenya and Zambia, which have been extremely well documented, because, uh, and I've, I've, I've visited these programs, where the church is actually leading the way in providing HIV testing on door-to-door -door basis. And you would hardly imagine it, but in both in Kenya and Zambia, up to 80% of people accept to have an HIV test from a church member who comes to the door and offers to test the entire family. So that's just one example of ways in which the faith groups and the government come together to seek to improve the care of detection of HIV, and then that moves on to improved treatment and and care. How did these? Uh, how did the change come about from perpetuating the stigma of HIV to to deconstructing it to opposing it? Well, that's a very interesting question. I think, to a certain degree, it was a theological reappraisal. Whereas there was a very strong emphasis on judgment in the early days of the HIV epidemic by church leaders, as more and more people came to realise in the early days that care and compassion for those who were dying without any form of antiretroviral drug, because at that time, there was no antiretroviral drug program available. It emphasized the role of church groups who were very much into end-of-life care and palliative care, which was given in a very compassionate way. And indeed, the church groups who had, the, frankly, the, the greatest reputation were those who were more compassionate and those who had the least reputation were those who were judging and saying, don't come to church because you're HIV positive. So I think it was, an, it was actually a theological reappraisal saying, we're not here to judge people, we're here to love them and to give compassionate care. So you've kind of identified the value of collaboration between different sectors, between faith and policymakers. And you've also, in the, in the Lancet paper, you identified this growing trend of different faith groups working closely together to achieve considerable improvements in healthcare, um, you wrote. I wonder about the, the barriers you've encountered to these kind of partnerships. I wonder if you've encountered much mistrust between different groups. For example, do people see faith-based healthcare as more concerned with converting people rather than looking after their health? And then on the flip side of that, is there also concerned that secular healthcare is, is more about money than care. Are these mistrusts a reality that you've encountered? Well, you ask some really important questions. Uh, first of all, uh, what are the barriers? The barriers are initially, at least, really strong and quite horrific in that people have preconceived ideas about what everybody else is trying to do. And um, when it comes to provision of healthcare, then there is often uh, mistrust. I'll give an example, for instance. If you are looking at the healthcare for, uh, for people with drug addiction, uh, particularly intravenous drug addiction, um, there have often been quite considerable differences between groups. For instance, uh, it, it's well recognized that there is a benefit in providing clean needles and syringes uh, to people who are drug addicts to seek to reduce the spread of HIV and hepatitis C 
uh, which will kill them. And uh, a lot of people initially were divided in their opinions about this. Some said, actually, it's very important to provide needles and, uh, and, and syringes in a, in a careful, supportive environment, helping people with their emotional problems. And other people say, no, you're just perseverating the problem by giving them uh, the needles and you're, you should make sure that they just don't have any access to those. So sometimes there are theological differences and sometimes there are cultural differences. Um, and another one, for instance, is the whole question of child protection. So in some countries, uh, female genital mutilation is a really big issue whereby children, uh, we're talking about girls, obviously, um, are cut um, at an early age um, as part of a normal culture. Now, we know that this is a devastating thing for the health of women and it's also dangerous for the children that they will bear and some faith groups initially promoted this because they saw this as a way of enhancing um as it were fidelity uh, of girls it was a very controlling way of enhancing fidelity uh, more recently the faith groups have changed considerably to move towards that. And I've seen examples where Islamic groups and Christian groups are working together um, to actually reduce the prevalence of female genital mutilation, which is a serious form of child abuse. So those are just some examples. There, there are others. Uh, when I asked about HIV stigma and how that, how that attitudes towards that change within the church, and then you've identified some more change there did this come about from as you say a, a theological reappraisal or are, are there are there other things causing this change in say attitudes towards female genital mutilation i think there are several issues i think we should we should pay credit to the fact that there have been passionate people um without faith who have made enormous steps to reduce the prevalence of female genital mutilation, to make it illegal. And um, those uh, have not always had a faith. But uh, the change in the attitudes of those believers who felt that female genital mutilation was possibly a good thing and culturally supported has, I think, largely been because of the recognition of the health hazards so it's, it's partly a greater recognition among community leaders, among church leaders, of the real ways of actually improving health. And just because something has been practiced for hundreds, possibly thousands of years, and supported by faith groups, doesn't mean to say that that is necessarily the right thing. And it is clear now that whether it's coming to HIV or child protection, or even family planning, for instance, which we could discuss, there are now very clear and vocal theological leaders who are looking at their, what I'm calling their sacred scriptures, based on predominantly from the Islamic and the Christian faith, but also looking at some of the Buddhist teaching, who have made it very clear that there are sacred scriptures which support the positive way of preventing 
and treating and caring for illness. And those have changed dramatically, I would say, over the last 20 years. There are some excellent organizations which are promoting this globally. There's a very good one called the Joint Learning Initiative, um, which um, has a big global program of working between faith groups uh, to support people in these difficult areas. And interestingly enough, the UNAIDS, which is the United Nations organization, which is responsible for the uh, prevention, treatment and care of people with HIV, has a unit within it which focuses on the role of faith groups. And this has been remarkably successful at getting faith groups to re-examine their scriptures, re-examine their attitudes, and then being much more positive towards supporting women and children and men in the programs that are being provided both by faith group healthcare and also by secular groups. This brings me on to my next question, which, which is about the, the future trajectory that this faith and healthcare relationship is taking. Um, can you tell me a bit about what you um, trends you see happening or, or what kind of future you, you might envisage for um, for this relationship? Well, I can see I can see some negative ones and I can see some positive ones. The negative ones are very much experienced in the UK and Europe at the present time, where there is legislation in some countries allowing for assisted dying among children and adults. Now, there are some European countries where children actually are given terminal injections uh, to kill them. And this is an interesting situation because it means that within the country's legislative bodies, there is obviously a balance towards the lack of respect for life, that there is no consideration of sacredness of life at all, and therefore Basically, if there's any pain or discomfort in a serious illness, you just get rid of it. Whereas the faith groups are saying that it's a tough time. They are not in any way diminishing the problem. But they're saying that there is something very special about life that God has given. That is something sacred about it in ways that we can look at our sacred scriptures. But even at the end of the day when we looked at those sacred we were never completely understand it but they would say that there is something very special and life should be regarded as sacred and the wonderful work of end-of-life care that is done often driven by organizations that are faith-based or more importantly perhaps secular organizations that have people with a faith in them who have love and compassion I'm not saying that people without a faith have do not have love and compassion, but often the, these people are able to um, show this love and compassion as a result of their faith. Um, those are, uh, as it were, two driving forces which both in the UK and Europe are pushing against each other. And I see that as a negative uh, thing. Where I see a positive thing is where, for instance, families and communities of faith believers and government are coming together in terms of child protection, whether it's due to issues of immunization, uh, which has often been um, opposed by some groups to try and improve the coverage of immunization, whether it's to try and 
ensure that those who wish for family planning have access to it and those who are seeking to reduce um, the prevalence of violence against women are moving together. For instance, in Africa, which I, I, I know reasonably well, having lived there for many years, there are great examples of ways in which the faith groups and governments are coming together to really tackle some of these questions and to actually put uh, very strong programs on the ground. With, with these partnerships as well, do you see, um, does it tend to be a government that takes the lead or the faith group takes the lead or is power and responsibility shared? With any of those sort of issues, it is nearly always due to leadership of an, by an individual. And much as I would love to be able to think that everything came as a result of careful, logical, evidence-based thinking, a lot of the movement is often only occurs because of passionate leadership and compassionate leadership. And it, oftentimes that occurs in community groups. I've seen this in, in compassionate leadership in Islamic groups, and I've seen it in compassionate leadership in Christian groups. And they then can engage government seeking to ensure that what the government wants to do, which is important things such as reduce childhood illness, reduce childhood mortality and improve childhood development outcomes, that's on their agenda. And they can introduce new ways, more sustainable ways of doing this to the government, offering them good ideas, offering them good examples of practice. And for instance, a lot of the faith groups now are running training courses for people in secular organizations. And these are not seen as competitive, they are seen as collaborative. And I'm sure that this is, is an important way forward. Uh, you, you talked a bit before we started recording about a more holistic understanding of, of health and the whole person health that perhaps is a more prevalent understanding in 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 faith groups do you want to just just describe that to me this this understanding of whole person health or ho however you might term it yes well obviously there is now a much greater emphasis both in in european and north american uh, medicine to focus not just on survival and nutrition and illness but to look at the individual from the point of view of the fact that any individual has a physical, a mental, an emotional, and a spiritual status. And the way in which provision of care for the physical and the mental health has been focus point for many government programs over the years. But now people are recognizing the importance of the interaction between the emotional and even the spiritual and the survival and the illness. And so there is a much greater recognition of these issues, not just by faith groups, but also by government. And so I suspect that in the coming years, there's going to be greater emphasis on this. Now, one of the things that's going to be terribly important from a community perspective is going to be who actually controls power. And that is something we haven't really had an opportunity to discuss. But in terms of decision making, 
The question then is, how do faith groups enable people to make informed choice as a result of having information? It's not just a case of providing information. It's a case of making sure that individuals and families have enough power to work on that. And that sometimes challenges the current understanding of culture in that society, where perhaps men are much more able to take all the decisions, or rather they do take all the decisions and they control all the resources, and the ability of mothers to make informed choice about taking a child to a clinic, ways to feed a child, sometimes even those are controlled by men. And so I think the way in which people are going to be, governments, I'm saying, are, are going to be looking at the, the way in which health is seen are going to be much more inclusive than just survival and illness. Going to be looking at the emotional and the mental and the spiritual dimensions of the individuals. And the question then is, how can a government really provide for those? You can have all sorts of programmes to support um, mental health, but that's complex, but it's really important and absolutely vital to introduce that. The challenge will be recognising that people have a spiritual dimension to their lives and how to support them in that. And that will be a big challenge, but it's, it's something that there's some really great examples of how that's being supported with very compassionate, non-judging care. How how do you broach that subject of spiritual health in in a a world that's perhaps more let's say rational or scientific? Is is that is that something you you struggle with in your own work? I would not like the word scientific to be as it were science versus faith. Uh, that is not a helpful distinction. What I would say is there's a distinction between faith and secular. Some people who are very compassionate and caring do not have a faith. And some people who are compassionate and caring have a faith. For, for myself, I personally have a belief in Jesus Christ and I am a Christian. So I look at the individual from a spiritual as well as a physical and a microbiological and an epidemiological perspective. But the questions are how can you basically address that? Uh, I was in Malawi uh, a while ago, and uh, they asked me a very similar question to the one that you have asked. I was working with a group of community workers from churches and some from mosques, actually, who are doing uh, some HIV work in the community. And uh, they were asking me how we did it in the UK. And I said, well, actually, in the UK, it is extremely difficult for Christian health workers to share their faith in the clinic. And I said, even now we've got some examples of staff who have been dismissed from their jobs because they've offered to pray with patients. And they just fell about laughing, saying that uh, they would be dismissed if they didn't pray with patients. <laughs> so it just shows that we live in a wonderful world with different um, constraints. And it, it is probably tougher for somebody to have a spiritual understanding and a spiritual care in Europe and the UK than it is in many other countries. So you're a trustee for Aruka Network. Um, I wonder, 
our kind of cluster approach and our model of development, if you like, do do you see that as a way of addressing all of these uh, controversies and challenges and opportunities that we've that we've discussed? I am absolutely convinced as a scientist by the evidence that has come out over the last 10, 15 years of the vital role that communities play. There have actually been a large number of randomized controlled trials. Now these are trials in which there is intense intervention in some parts of the community and no intervention in other parts of the community. Uh, the sort of trial that we do when we're testing one medicine against another. And that technique has now been applied to communities. And it's very clear that promotion of community groups as a positive outcome on the survival and the morbidity, that's the illness rates, of children uh, when it's with, with mothers' groups. So there is very strong scientific basis for the role of strengthening community participation. And as we start to unpack what the nature of that community participation is, it's very interesting. It's not just information, it's to do a lot with power about decision-making. And so one of the things that is particularly interesting is some of the recent studies which have looked at the different ways of increasing power among those who do not have it in communities and seeing what impact that has upon the care that they are able to give to their children, the amount of access they are able to give, uh, to get their sick children to. And these have improved as a result of the sort of community activities that Aruka is doing. Now, these studies are, are, are involving many, many tens of thousands of people. But the message is very clear that you can start with small groups of people working in a community, seeking to improve the situation in their own locality in ways that are sustainable and sustained. And we know objectively and scientifically that these are going to lead to improvement of children and adults like so i'm a great supporter of what aruka is doing i'm not very academic but i do know that often it's important to start any academic paper by defining your terms and what you mean by a particular term and this podcast is about faith and health i wonder if you could i should have asked you this question at the beginning perhaps but i wonder if you could firstly what what, what does health mean to you mm. that's interesting okay you ask me, what does health mean? If we basically talk about health status, that is, how are we today? So if we as it were, look at ourselves in a mirror, we're alive. That's one thing, hopefully. Uh, secondly, um, are we feeling ill? Do we have a physical illness? Thirdly, do we have a mental illness? Are we sad? Or are we delusional? Or are we sick in any way with mental health issues. Uh, thirdly, how are our emotions? And our emotions are, are key drivers of our physical health. And so basically, all of these um, interact. And then the final one is, where are we in our spiritual health? 
I then asked me to define spiritual health because I've been asking my Christian cleric friends for years and they've totally failed to come up with any decent <laughs> uh, definition of spiritual health, which is a very interesting observation. But we know that physical and mental and emotional and spiritual all combine. So that's health status, where we are here and now. And how those individual aspects of health interact with each other is quite complex, and I'm not going into that. Some of it interacts in terms of uh, endocrine status, our hormones. Some of it relates into our uh, neurological response to stress. A whole whole range of, of, of interactions between uh, one aspect of health, say emotional strength, and our aspect of our physical health. And then the other aspect is health care, and that is what do we provide for health care? And the we used to be just healthcare professionals, but now we can see that the ability of communities and individuals to contribute towards improvement of the environment, improvement of the mental health, improvement of power, improvement of political status, um, are all vital elements to health care. So this health status is where we are here and now. Health care is what do we do to try and change our health status, either to promote it or to prevent an illness or to care when an illness comes. That's just in a nutshell, perhaps, but it's a much more complex issue. Yours is a very important question. <laughs> Can I also ask you, what, what does faith mean to you? Faith is a key issue in being able to understand our meaning of life and our purpose in life. Faith is the ability of an individual to believe in a creator God, to believe in the way that creator God seeks to communicate with individuals and communities in the beautiful planet that he has created. And faith also encompasses the release of love and compassion and care by individuals and communities who share in that common belief in God and in the case of Christians, in his son Jesus Christ, who died for them. So it's basically, it is to a certain degree, it's a faith is primarily a theological relationship between God and the individual. You might decide to take that relationship, you might decide to reject it. It's a free offering given by God. But it also means that it's not just a relationship, it is actually something that influences how we live, how we contribute to our relationships in society, in our families, in our friends. Faith is also what drives the compassion within individuals to move them to be more caring for themselves and for their environment. And faith ultimately is the most unexplored powerhouse that there has ever been for changing health care and health behaviour. And I see 
that as something that Aruka is seeking in a very effective way to explore. There you have it. That was Professor Andrew Tompkins from University College London. I hope you enjoyed hearing from him. If you want to hear a bit more about faith and health, then do listen to one of our previous podcasts from last year in which we hear how Christians and Muslim groups in Sierra Leone helped to bring about an end to the Ebola crisis there. And then just to look ahead to next month's podcast, we'll be hearing about the challenges of building community amongst Syrian refugees in the UK. So stay tuned for that. But that's it from me. Bye for now. 